0: So Ezra one one through three. Again, if you've been following along, you know you have first and second Kings, first and second chronicles, and then Ezra. If you hit Nehemiah, then obviously you've gone, you've gone too far. Ezra one, one through three, the word of the Lord says this in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord God, I believe as we gather this morning, gathering together as your church, your local body of believers in this place, that you are present here by the power of your Holy Spirit and you have something supernatural that you want to do in this gathering of your people, through the songs, through the prayers, through the the, the preaching of your word that that, that we will receive now, that you want to move mightily for the flourishing of your people and the building of your kingdom. And I believe that this morning in in the book of Ezra, you want to reinforce that truth in the importance of this gathering. So, Lord, we just ask that you will be with us now, that you will teach us, convict us, And also, Lord, just help us to stand in awe of who you are as our great God and Savior. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we get into the book of Ezra this morning, in order to understand kind of the the weight of this book and ultimately the goodness of God in it, you need also to remember where the Israelites have been and why they've been there. So, After Israel split into the two kingdoms because of Solomon and Rehoboam's sin, we have the northern kingdom, right? They split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but we have the northern kingdom, which includes 10 tribes of Israel, and what they did is they set up images to represent their own gods, right? They they set them up in Samaria, and they said, these are our gods, worship them. And this leads to years of walking away from the Lord, which results in their being sent into exile in 2 Kings 17 by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Then we have the southern kingdom, and the southern kingdom was predominantly uh, Judah and Benjamin. And what we see is they, they fared a little bit better, but not much. They had a mix of evil kings, but also on the good side, they had a mix of kings who then also brought them back to the Lord. And yet, because of their continual sin, their walking away from Yahweh, their God, time and time again. He eventually destroyed the temple and sent them into exile in 2 Chronicles 36 by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And that's where they remained for the better part of 70 years. And all of this happened because they had forsaken the proper worship of their God and they had sought false gods instead. As the prophet Huldah said in 2 Chronicles 34, 23 through 25, kind of an obscure prophetess in, in Chronicles, the prophetess Huldah, from the Lord, she says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the, the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods. That they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands; therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. And so, things were looking pretty bleak for the Israelites, and especially for the southern kingdom between the years of 586 and 539 B.C. But then something happens, and we first hear about it in Second Chronicles 37:22 and 23. And what happens in those two verses is that it jumps ahead in history to the reign of Cyrus, and it gives the Israelites a glimmer of hope that their God has not forsaken them. It says that the Lord stirred the spirit of King Cyrus to make a proclamation that the house of the Lord, and when we talk about the house of the Lord, we're talking about the temple, that the house of the Lord should be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and whoever is of the Lord's people should go up to do this work and this is the exact same proclamation that we read in our opening verses this morning because the same hope in the good news that second chronicles ends with is the same good news that the book of Ezra opens with now i just want to give you a little bit of background about this book 1 Ezra divides up into two main sections chapters 1 through 6 chronicle god god restoring his people to the land of judah and then chapters 7 through 10 chronicle god's reformation of his restored people through Ezra. This book, like First and 2 Kings and First and Second Chronicles, was actually together with another book. It was actually originally put together as one book with the book of Nehemiah, and it's traditionally been attributed to Ezra as the author. However, modern scholars believe, as they look at it now, they believe that the book of Ezra was partially Ezra writing, and then partially somebody else. It was likely written sometime between 433 and 424 B.C., and even though it's only 10 chapters, the amazing thing about this book is it actually spans almost one, a 100-year time period. In fact, I've got a chart up here for you that kind of helps to show that. So and if you, actually, if you have like a, an ESV study Bible, most of this is actually written in there. But I just want to go through it briefly for you. That King Cyrus captures Babylon in 539 B.C. That's in the book of Daniel. Uh, Cyrus issues a proclamation freeing the Jewish exiles. Those are in the verses that we read in 538 the Jewish exiles return from Babylon to Jerusalem in 537. Also, they begin to rebuild the altar, and then the temple building uh, rebuilding begins in 536. That's Ezra 3:8. Then, as we get into chapter four, we start to see that adversaries oppose the rebuilding, and then something interesting happens. There's an example, uh, an example letter of opposition from a future time in Ezra 4:7. To 23. And they're not sure exactly when the letter comes from, but they believe it is probably from the years of 464 to to 446. And, And I know that probably feels a little bit weird that it's like a letter from a future time, but this is a technique that is employed here to show that the opposition that they were facing in this book is something that was ongoing. That it's not just something that was happening in the 500s, in the 500 time BC, but it's something that happened throughout many years, over many generations. Then we have, it picks back up the narrative with the temple rebuilding ceasing from 530 to 520. Uh, We have the temple construction completed in the sixth year of Darius, that's 516. Ezra departs from Babylon to Jerusalem. Again, there's a big gap of time between the temple being finished and Ezra actually coming in 458. The men of Judah and Benjamin assemble at Jerusalem in 458. And then it kind of ends in a very weird way, but the officials conduct an investigation of intermarriage, and kind of the results of that are the ending of the book of Ezra, which is why actually they believe that it's, it was together with Nehemiah, because of how it ends. It doesn't have a finality, but it feels like it continues on into Nehemiah. However, despite all of that, and despite sort of this spanning a, a huge amount of time, one of the amazing things about the book of Ezra is that there is one overarching theme that just goes through the whole entire thing. And it's this. It's that God desires worship, and in particular, corporate worship. And what I mean by corporate worship is the gathering of his people, what we're doing right now. So God desires worship, and in particular, corporate worship, to be of primary importance in the lives of his people, And so this morning, as we walk through the book of Ezra, we're going to see that importance. We're going to see the importance of corporate worship, this gathering together. We're going to see what it looked like in Israel, why it's important for us, and then ultimately that the results of faithful worship are exceeding joy. So I want to start this morning by looking at our first point, which is the importance of corporate worship. Corporate worship is to be a primary activity in the lives of God's people. Going back to our opening verses, Ezra 1, 2, and 3. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So finally, the time has come for God's people. God, in his power and in his mercy, he works in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that the people of Israel who still remain in the land, they're free to go, and they can go back to Judah, and they can go back to Jerusalem. This means that after 70 years, the people of Israel, and in particular, as you read the book of Ezra, you realize when it says the people of Israel, he's predominantly talking about the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin, that they may go back to their homeland, which they've been away from for almost a generation. But the thing is, when God sent them back, He didn't just send them back to build comfy homes and to enjoy a good life. He's not just like, hey, build a house, go live how you may. Doesn't matter. You didn't do that. Instead, God is sending them back with a command. And the command is that they are to build Him a new home or temple in Jerusalem. And the reason that this is important is because the temple was the center of worship for the Israelites. It was the place that they went to experience God's presence and to experience his forgiveness through the offering of sacrifices. It was the central place that God's presence dwelt and that his people carried out their covenant relationship with him through worship. This is why it says in Ezra right here, it says that it's the house of the Lord. Because God's desire was to dwell with his people And be their God. In fact, we have this pointed out in Leviticus. Leviticus 26, 11 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. This means that God's primary reason for calling his people out of exile is so that they would worship him together and could experience a restored fellowship with him through the building of a new temple. In fact, worship, if we look back to the book of Exodus, is the primary reason that God even called his people out of captivity in the first place. Exodus 8.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. And in the ESV, it says that they may serve me. But I do find it interesting that in the NIV and in the Holman, it says, Worship me. And if you look up that word, it definitely can be translated as worship me. And so the point here is that the primary call on the, li- on the lives of God's people is worship. And now for us as New Testament Christians, right, we know. We know that we don't worship at a temple, right? We don't have to do that. Because the word of God tells us now that we are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We were bought with a high price, which of course was Jesus' life on the cross. He took our sin, we got his righteousness, and he opened the way for us to freely fellowship with God. And now scripture says that he has made us his temple where his holy spirit dwells. And because of this, because of him living in us, we now have 24 access to God, where we can worship him and fellowship with him at any time. That's so good. But as awesome as that is, it doesn't set aside or diminish the importance of the of gathering together as God's people to worship him. If anything, What we see in the New Testament is a reinforcing of the importance of gathering, right? God reinforces the importance of gathering to worship uh, him as his people. Look with me, book of Acts. Acts 2, 42 through 44, some of my favorite verses. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together... And had all things in common. And what we see very clearly here through the writer Luke is that, is that the, we see the importance and the power of the early church gathering together. And then if we go from Acts to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And here we have first a call not to neglect meeting together, meaning that meeting together, according to the author of Hebrews, if you extrapolate it, is commanded. But we also see that it's integral, that it's integral for stirring one another up to love and good works. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation— Let all things be done for the building up. So Paul is not only making meeting a priority, but he's saying that we each have something that God has given us for the purpose of building up the body. That means that each of you here who call the Crescent Free your church home, you have something that God has given you, a a gift of sorts for the building up of this body, And so the point being is that the New Testament does not diminish the importance of the corporate gathering of God's people, but instead it reinforces it and it reminds us that it's a very big deal. So why am I bringing this up? Well, one, because I believe it's one of the main points of the book of Ezra, but because we live in a time where the importance of the weekly gathering of the church and being invested in a body of believers is being diminished. It's being relegated to something that is a practice of the past, and it's increasingly becoming optional in the lives of believers. According to a Barna Group study, church attendance in America over the last decade or so has slowly fallen from about 45% of the population to about 29% of the population. That's a big shift. It's not just COVID. Like, if you look at the graph, it's a very, over the last decade or so, it's a very kind of marked decline from 45% to 29%. Even more concerning than this is research done by Thomas Rayner at Church Answers that found that only 30%, 30% of a church's population actually attends the weekly gathering three to four times a month. So when we talk about regular gathering of a church, right, on a weekly basis, only 30% in general of a church's population actually does that. The next largest group is 25% who attends one to two times a month. Even worse than that, another 25% attend only 4 to 10 times a year. And then lastly, the last group is 20% who attends 1 to 3 times a year. That's crazy. And then lastly, according to another study by Barna, only fiftieth percent of churchgoers see it as important to take a vested interest in the church by becoming members. And now, I say this actually believing that we at La Crescent Free... I think we're a little bit better than these numbers actually kind of point out. But it doesn't mean that we don't face the same problems. It is far too easy for us to see church attendance, membership, and taking an active part in the life of the body as something that is optional versus something that's commanded by God and is necessary for our flourishing as his people. I'm going to say that again. It is far too easy for us to see church attendance, Membership and taking an active part in the life of the body is something that is optional versus something that is commanded by God and is necessary for our flourishing as his people. But that statement begs the question. If church attendance, if membership, if, if being involved in the body of believers, if it's commanded by God and if it's necessary for us, then what's it supposed to look like? And ultimately, why is it good for us? And that's the second thing that I want to look at this morning. It's the benefits and practices of corporate worship. And so, as we jump back into the book of Ezra, we already know that God worked through Cyrus to free his people from captivity. And we also know that the purpose of that freedom was so so that they would go back to Judah and Jerusalem to reestablish the worship of their God, Yahweh, by building him a new home or a temple. And again, we learn that from Ezra 1, uh, 1 through 3. But now as we move past Ezra 1, and ultimately we're going to move past Ezra 2, if you want to read it, you can, but it's very much like Chronicles where it's a lot of like this many people, this person, these people came back, blah, blah, blah. Important, but we're going to move past it. But then as we move into chapters 3 through 10, we get to see the building of the temple and we get a picture of what their worship of God looked like. And now, for time's sake, what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly touch on various verses throughout these chapters to sort of highlight the ways in which the Israelites worshiped God. And then, in doing that, I'm going to show you how it connects to our worship today and why it's important and beneficial for us as his people. And so, the first thing that we see is this, is that instead of living in fear, the Israelites worshiped God through sacrifices. Look with me at the following verses here. Ezra 3, 1 through 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So although the people of Israel were firmly settled in the land of Judah, it doesn't mean it was perfect. We learn in Ezra 4, 4 through 5, that there were other non-Jews who didn't particularly care for the Israelites. They disliked the return to exile so much that it says that they discouraged them, they made them afraid to do the work that God had given them, and ultimately they made life hard. But instead of fully living into that fear, instead of fully giving up, the Israelites, it says, came together as one man to build the altar of God so they could offer sacrifices, they could make atonement for sins, and they could have a renewed fellowship with God. And so the first priority for the returned exiles in the face of opposition was to join together to seek the presence of and fellowship of their God. As a result, we see God helping his people to flourish in the land, not only throughout the book of Ezra, but if you kind of take a sneak peek to this next week and read through the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see the same thing as well, how God allows them to flourish. In fact, come back for that. That's Eric's going to preach on that next week. And in a similar fashion, if we turn to the New Testament, reread in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now hopefully, maybe you know the background of what's happening here, but we have a group of people gathering together right after Jesus ascended into heaven. He was killed, he came back to life, and now he's gone. And this group is probably gathering together, and they're probably a little scared, right? Right? Like, Jesus is gone, he said he's going to send another helper, but we don't, we don't know when that helper is going to come, so we're like here going, what's going to happen? Are we going to be persecuted and killed just like Jesus? Like, what's the next thing? But instead of scattering and running at fear, it says that they were together devoting themselves to prayer. Like the Israelites, they were seeking God's presence and fellowship together. And if you know the rest of the story in Acts... That ultimately leads to the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then if you read the whole book of Acts, it leads to the explosion of the church. All throughout cities and, and those places in Europe and in the Middle East. Now the point in sharing this for us is twofold. One, we need to remember this morning that when we gather God's presence is here. Ephesians 2.22 It says, In him you, and that you is plural, it's talking about the church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. His presence is here when we gather. Two, when we make gathering to worship God a priority, he moves and allows his people, the church, to flourish. Acts 2, a couple more verses in Acts two, verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So when we gather to faithfully worship and fellowship with God, we need to remember that He is present and that he is going to move in our midst. And when he does, he is going to make us flourish as his people. Secondly, the Israelites used their resources and gifts to build the temple, again, God's house. Ezra 2, verses 68 and 69. Some of the heads of the families, when they came back to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minus of silver, and 100 priests' garments. And then, next slide. And then in Ezra 3, verses 8 and 9. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem... From the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. As we've already seen, the Israelites knew that they were commanded by God to come back and to build the temple but they also knew that the temple was vital to their worship of God and his presence with them. So when the time came to rebuild, they were more than willing, more than willing to give up their resources, whether that was material, whether that was time and energy and gifts. They were willing to give it for the rebuilding of God's temple. This was what you would call an all-hands-on-deck process. And now, as we look throughout the book of Ezra, I mean, I have to admit, this was an up-and-down process, right? So at, at certain times, they were more successful than others. At times, they, they were forced to stop building. But ultimately, ultimately, God allowed them to prosper, and the temple was finally finished in 516 B.C. As it says in Ezra 6, verses 14 and 15, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. Now, as I said earlier, because of the amazing sacrifice of Christ on the cross, like we no longer have a physical temple because God, through Christ, by his spirit, has made us his temple. Right? It's so good. But that does not diminish. It does not diminish our responsibility to use our resources, whether it be material or spiritual, to build up the body of Christ, which Scripture says is the church. Book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, this is the important part, to equip the saints for the work of, Of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. If you are a saint here this morning, meaning that you are someone who has put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. His making an atonement for your sins, then he is calling you and commanding you to use your gifts and your resources in the context of the body of Christ, the church, to build each other up to maturity in Christ so that we as a church together look like Christ. And as we do this, Peter says in 1 Peter 11 that God will be glorified through Christ. And so as the Israelites use their resources to rebuild the temple, we too, we must use our resources and gifts to build up the body of Christ so that our God will be seen, that he will be adored, and that he will be glorified. Lastly, the Israelites collectively listened to and obeyed God's commands. Ezra ten three. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord, of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done, according to the law. So, in Ezra nine, it comes to Ezra's attention that the people of Israel, along with the priests and the Levites, that they had intermarried with the people of the surrounding lands, and this was something that was forbidden in the law of God. And in response to this, as as Ezra heard this, as Ezra saw this, like he was undone. And it says that he tore his garments, that he fell to the ground, that he wept before God, and he prayed. And as a result, those who heard him, there was a great crowd around him. And those who heard him, they responded. And they said that they would make a covenant with God that they would put away their foreign wives in accordance with Ezra's counsel, and that they would obey the commands of God in the law. So the Israelites, they heard God's word through Ezra, they were confronted with his commands, and they responded by walking in obedience and turning away from their sin. And in the same way, we as Christians, we are called to be a people who hear and respond to God's commands. In fact, in the book of James, James 1.22, very, if there's anything that you've probably memorized out of the book of James, it's probably this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, right? God's command in our life is not just to hear God's word, but to put it into action, to live it out. But scripture also tells us, that one of the primary ways that we are to hear and to respond to God's commands is through the preaching of his word. This is why Paul writes this letter to Timothy, right? Timothy is basically a local church pastor. And what he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 is this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and patience. And teaching. This is one of the reasons why somebody stands here every Sunday and preaches the word to you because we believe it is commanded by God and His Word, and it's commanded to you, then, whoever, if I'm out there listening, whoever we are to respond to it and obey it. So, therefore, like Israel, we must prioritize hearing and responding to and obeying God's word, especially especially the preached word that comes to you in the context of the local church. And James says in the last part of James 1.25 that when we respond to the word, when we walk in obedience to God's commands, he says that we will be blessed in our doing. Who doesn't want to be blessed in their doing? Now, I've ultimately just scratched the surface of this book this morning So much more could be said about how the Israelites praised God, how they sang to God, how they prayed. There's there's an awesome part of Ezra where you can see them protecting their distinctiveness as God's people, so important. And yet, we could talk about how that relates to our worship. Also, I could spend a whole sermon talking about the providential hand of God, like how he led his people and worked through these pagan kings like Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. But the most important thing that we need to take away from this sermon this morning is that the ordinary and regular gathering of God's people as a church is not optional. It is not just another thing, but it is meant to be one of the primary activities in the life of every believer. And when we as God's people, when we make this gathering a priority, when we come together here to encounter the living God together, When we come here to invest in the church, to to use our gifts for the building up of the body, to to rightly hear and respond to God's word together, we not only glorify our God and exalt Christ, but we will see God working in our midst for the building of his church and the flourishing of his people. And scripture tells us that when we live in this way, when we live out these activities with, with, with all of our hearts as a church that what will come as a result is exceeding joy from our great God. Look with me at Ezra 6. So they've just celebrated the Passover, and then it says this, And they kept the feasts of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. Why? For the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And then likewise, in John 15, 10, and 11, Jesus writes, If you keep my commandments, those commandments including, as you read the New Testament, the gathering of his people, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so I want to end this morning by saying this to you, that we need to be a people that keep God's commands. That make worshiping with and investing in God's people, the church, a priority. And together, let's expectantly, expectantly wait for, pray for, and stand in awe of the work that he will do in our midst so that we can together, and I do mean together, experience the exceeding joy that he has for us. Let's pray. Lord God, I know in my own heart it has been so good, so good to be reminded of the importance of your, of your people gathering together. The reality that when we gather that you are present. The reality as I, I look at the, 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 the example of Israel and even in the, into the New Testament to see how you moved when your people gathered. The fact that, that you want to move in our midst. The fact that that you want your church to flourish. You want your kingdom to be built. And so, Lord, I'm praying that that you will help each one of us to just stand in, in, in awe of this ordinary gathering that happens each week, realizing that what feels ordinary, you have ordained from the beginning of time to accomplish the extraordinary. To accomplish your kingdom purpose, to accomplish the flourishing of your people and the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And may we just come believing you will do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship this morning.